SEC fans, welcome to the Saturday Down South podcast. Coming to you from the iHeartMedia studio, WDAE in Tampa, Florida. 6.20 a.m. and 95.3 FM. My name is John Christ, senior writer for Saturday Down South, and his name is Connor O'Gara, national columnist for Saturday Down South. You can follow me on Twitter at SaturdayJC, and be sure to follow him as well at CJ O'Gara. Connor, the SEC schedule, again, is a little lean this week, but hopefully the cocktail party can save us with a 3.30 kick on CBS. Always interesting. Looking forward to, to seeing what comes of that this year. I think, I, I think we're going to talk about that today a little bit. Just, just a hunch. Just a hunch, and that hunch is correct. The Saturday Down South podcast is brought to you by Holiday Inn Express. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsor. Are you ready to go head-to-head with me? Well, good luck, because ready won't cut it. Be the readiest and give me your best shot at the five-bomb face-off at an SEC game near you. And before you step up, start your day with a free hearty breakfast at Holiday Inn Express. They're a proud sponsor of SEC football, and they look forward to helping you be the readiest. Holiday Inn Express, be the readiest. And the Holiday Inn Express Fine Bomb Face-Off will be at SEC Nation in Jacksonville this Saturday. So if you're heading down there for the game, make sure to stop by SEC Nation on Saturday morning, 9 a.m. to noon. It's located along the St. John's River in Met Park 2 across Gator Bowl Boulevard from Lot J. And then located on the west side of the stadium between Lots J and M, you can do your very own virtual interview with Paul Feinbaum. Afterward, pick up some pancakes from the One Touch Pancake Machine. It's all brought to you by Holiday Inn Express. All right, Connor, before we get to the game itself, let's get the plug alert real, real early in the show. I wrote a column for Wednesday at Saturday Down South about Florida, Georgia. Specifically, it's now unofficial nickname, the world's largest outdoor cocktail party. And it's the only thing I've ever written that Gators fans and Bulldogs fans alike were in 100% agreement in the comments section. I'm sure you can understand why. Uh, yeah, and let's, let's be honest. I mean, are we ever going to get away from this? I, if it hasn't happened by now in 2017 in the world of being so politically correct, I, I, I don't know when it's ever going to happen. I think it's a, something that's not going away as much as coaches try and push it away and they say that they don't worry about it, and they don't have to worry about it, but... Uh, from a fan's perspective, I, I don't I don't see that nickname fading anytime soon. No, it's not going to fade anytime soon. And just for some backdrop here, uh, the nickname started in the 50s. It was a sports editor for the Florida Times Union, the local Jacksonville paper back in the day. He dubbed it. The city thought it was catchy, and they ran with it. And the legend took off from there. But after some, of course, alcohol-fueled incidents in the 80s, the city disassociated itself with the nickname, I believe, in 1988. But... Fans have been calling it the cocktail party ever since, and I think they always will. And it just seems a little silly to me that, you know, just own it. The game is what it is. The situation is what it is. The neutral site nature of this game is what it is. You know what? There's going to be gratuitous drinking in the parking lot. Whether you're in red and black or orange and blue, it's no different from other college football games. It's just on a grander scale. It's sort of a one-year Christmas in Jacksonville Uh, What they do it every single year, it's fantastic if you haven't been there before. But 
It's not like if you stop calling it the cocktail party and try to rebrand it as the River City Showdown that all of a sudden everybody's going to be you know, eating PB&J in the parking lot and drinking lemonade. It doesn't work that way. The game is the game. Celebrate it for what it is. What's the big deal about being so crazy PC about this? Yeah, and it's, it's college football. The reality is that it's not going away just because it's in Jacksonville either. I mean, to, to think that you're going to limit – uh, the amount of the, the extracurriculars in the parking lot is just, I mean, to me it's it, it's nearly impossible to do. We see this all over the SEC, all over the college football landscape. I mean, it just happens to be that this name is associated with this game. And, I, you know, I have, no, I have no real problem with it. I mean, take it for, for what it is and understand that there's still going to be some really good football played between two uh, programs that obviously have a lot to prove. And I think you know, from from our standpoint, that's still going to be the more interesting angle year in year out. How the fans treat it and how the fans celebrate going in, you know, that that, that obviously can be uh, can be debated amongst them. But from our standpoint, I mean, I think that we're uh, we're in for an interesting chapter in what should be uh, a very telling game on Saturday. Yeah. Last point on the nickname stuff, and then we'll move on to the game itself. But. You know what? The schools have disassociated themselves with the name. So has the city. So has the conference. I talked to Kirby Smart on the conference call this week, and I talked to Jim McElwain on the conference call this week, and I asked him about the nickname, about the game. They both basically evaded the question, and they wouldn't refer to the game as the cocktail party. On top of that, the CBS broadcast, the whole three and a half, four hours they're on the air, they are not allowed to use that nickname. They can't use it at all. So don't expect to hear it referenced one time by Brad Nessler or Ali LaForce on the sideline, Gary Danielson doing the color. It's, you're not going to hear it. And then even more than that, this was a little surprising. So as you know, I make some periodic appearances on the Paul Feinbaum show, basically the soundtrack of the SEC. Sometimes they call me and say, hey, we saw this column. We like it. Let's have you on and talk about it. But every now and then I'll pitch something to them. I'll get in touch with the producers and I say, hey, I got something running Thursday I think you guys might like. Might be a nice conversation piece. Uh, Do you have any openings you want to have me on today? And I did that for the cocktail party column I wrote Wednesday. And I actually heard back from Fine Bond's producers and they said no. The very first time they've ever said no. And they said the whole cocktail party thing. Not only does Florida not like it anymore. Not only does Georgia not like it anymore. Not only does Jacksonville not like it anymore. But the conference doesn't want to use it, and they've gone so far as to, t- as to talk to people on the Feinbaum show and say, please don't refer to this game as the cocktail party in any context. I was a little disappointed, to be honest, that it sort of cratered to that pressure. But you know what? If you're Paul Feinbaum and you're going to have that murderer's rogue guest list, I guess you have to do that every now and then. I understand. I get that, and it's not something that really is going to change the overall outlook of the game. They can try and in downplay it all they want, but fans are going to do what they're going to do, whether it's marketed or not. So, I mean, for me, you know, everybody, you know, the powers that be want this to be about football. They don't want this to be about the party. And, you know, it's each fan is going to make it what it is, you know, for, for them specifically. So I don't really have uh, too big of qualms with, with the people who want to disassociate themselves from the name. But, you know, it is what it is. And for me, it's just – Something like that that's been around that long that uh, is, is that widely uh, celebrated is, is not going to change anytime soon. No, it's not. Certainly not for people with Jacksonville ties like myself. 
But again, believe it or not, I got Gators readers and Bulldogs readers on the same page. First time for everything, I suppose. But let's talk about the actual on-the-field product and just look at it from a real macro perspective. The Bulldogs are better running the ball. They're better stopping the run. They're better stopping the pass. And even though statistically Florida throws for a couple more yards per game than Georgia, I would argue pretty easily that Georgia throws the ball better as well because what we've seen from Jake Fromm versus Felipe Franks and the other Gator quarterbacks we've seen. So I'm having a hard time, even in this rivalry, which has been funky from time to time, Florida has really owned it since Steve Spurrier went back to Gainesville in 1990, 21-6 the last 27 times out. But I'm having a really, really hard time making any case for Florida whatsoever based on what we've seen through six or seven games. I just can't. I, I've, I've been saying for the last few weeks, I can't, I can't get caught up in history with this game because, to me, the 2017 product just far outweighs that. And I understand that there have been instances in years past in which Georgia has looked like the better team coming into this game, and it hasn't mattered. I'm saying under Kirby Smart, that's just a different story. I think we're at a different place now with these two teams, especially where they're at right now coming into this game and the problems that Florida has on offense and all of the strengths that Georgia has on defense. To me, that matchup is is as lopsided as any that we've seen maybe in the SEC so far this year, with probably the exception of Tennessee's offense against Alabama's defense. But it's not that far off from it. It's really not. And you're looking at a situation in which – yeah, you can point to history, and you know Florida was really you know happy to talk about the fact that it won three straight games against against the Dogs. But you know the reality is you have to play a game on Saturday with your current roster, and those past Florida players aren't coming back. Those past Georgia players aren't coming back, and for that Florida team to somehow find a way to stay on the field with with this 2017 Georgia team, to me, it just seems incredibly difficult. And the odds of that uh, just seems slim a 14 point spread for georgia i thought was actually kind of low i was i was leaning more in the 18 19 20 range for for what i think this game could turn out to be so uh, yeah i mean i'm right there with you i'm searching for for any possible way to see this happening and and i mean it's going to take like several defensive touchdowns special teams touchdowns for florida just to to stay in this game i think yeah, and you know what? Both programs coming off a bye, and you would hope that would be good news for Florida, for a team that's been beaten up and struggled offensively. But if anything, things have gotten even worse in Gainesville, despite not playing this past Saturday, which seems unbelievable. You still have all the suspended players who are clearly done on that campus. We're never going to see Antonio Callaway again in orange and blue. We're never going to see Jordan Scarlett either. They're going to probably end up in the NFL draft and do what they do as pros, but the injury list keeps getting longer. Jordan Sherrod's a heck of a pass rusher. He's the last guy, I believe, who's gone for the year. You're not going to see him again. This is a perilously thin depth chart on both sides of the ball. You only have 85 scholarship players, which sounds like a whole heck of a lot. But when you got nine of them suspended and probably nine more dealing with serious injuries, that number gets thin in a hurry. There's going to be an awful lot of freshmen and inexperienced players going to be asked to go in there for Florida and contribute and make plays. And I don't know if that's going to happen. You and I are in complete agreement that this is not your father's Georgia. This is not Mark Rick's Georgia. This has become Alabama East, and it is scary reminiscent of what we see from the Crimson Tide on a regular basis, which is exactly what Kirby Smart wanted. But on top of that, you have another just mystifying situation with Jim McElwain. 
You know, around SEC media days in July, it was the whole shark story, which was positively ridiculous and should have gotten swatted aside in about a minute and a half. Instead, that story had crazy legs for like three or four weeks. And now we have the death threat stuff where he's sort of not even asked about it. Coach McElwain brings it up where it's affecting his family. It's affecting his players. Then he gets asked for more specifics. He refuses to provide them. And then the administration asks for more specifics. And he again refuses to disclose them. It's just such a screwy situation. And we're starting to see the wheels come off for Coach Mack. And there's a lot of stuff out there right now, social media and legitimate, saying this is the beginning of the end for this guy. And if the, if the administration is not looking for a way to cut ties from him, maybe he's looking for a way to cut ties out of there and find another place to go coach. It's amazing what happens when a program – starts losing these these close games. And I think we kind of saw the writing on the wall with Florida that it was just skating by too much under Jim McElwain. And, you know, we talked about the 9-1 and one record in, in one-possession games that McElwain had. And then, of course, he lost two straight one-possession games. And, you know... That was entirely your fault, but we'll move on. I did jinx that. And I, I knew I jinxed it right then and there for Florida. So I'll take, I'll take the fall for that one, Gator fans. But... I mean, you know, we kind of saw this happening. You know, we said in the beginning of the year, even before the Michigan game, that this is not good. When you have this many players suspended, you have all the offseason stuff that's going on with Florida, and the fact that this team right now, if it gets off to a bad start, where, where are we at with Jim McElwain in year three? Because a lot of people, you know, rightfully, and Florida fans don't feel like those those division titles were earned. They don't feel like that. Uh, the strength of the division really, you know, lend itself to believe that Florida was a quality, you know, top 10, top 15 team. And, you know, the reality was they weren't. And I think now people are just kind of wondering if, if McElwain is any better than Will Muschamp. I think that's a, a fair question at this point, you know, given the fact that this is where Florida is in year, in year three of the McElwain era. And, Maybe, maybe something. It has. Maybe some of this has to do with the fact that they've played Power Five teams in every single game this year. I, I don't know that off the top of my head, but I think they're the only program in the country that's done that. So these mistakes have just been magnified week in, week out. They haven't had, you know, as we talked about earlier, Missouri-type opponents, um, and you know that we talked about off-air. But you know, they, they just haven't had these these games where they can just take a breath. It's been stress week in, week out for Florida and Jim McElwain. And it's starting to weigh on them, I think. And I think we're we're at a point now where they're just kind of ripe for the picking, so to speak. And if Georgia goes in there, goes into Jacksonville, and just blows the doors off of Florida like we expect them to, th- this is only going to continue to get worse. And I think the, the talk of Jim McElwain's future in Florida is only going to increase in the final weeks of the season because that schedule is not getting a whole lot easier. Yeah, in fairness to the Gators, if you remember back in September, we had the Hurricane Irma situation, and they were forced to cancel a game with Northern Colorado. They were coming into the swamp, and that's where you assume you're going to get that 51-7 to type victory, throw up some big numbers, let your walk-ons get some snaps. That's where you assume those things are going to happen. Instead, they've had six very high-stress games, as you've mentioned. But, yeah, you have to wonder what's going on with Coach Mack. And I had Danny Warfel on the podcast earlier this year – I'm sorry, earlier this week – Obviously, one of the greatest Gators in history, national champion, Heisman Trophy winner. And even though he's a believer in Coach Mack, he agrees with me. There are certain programs that you can't just win. You have to win with style points. You know, if you're at Iowa, you're a Big Ten guy. If you're at Iowa, Kinnick Stadium, 
you sort of appreciate that 14 to 3 win in 38 degree weather. You love that kind of stuff because I don't know, you're a Midwest guy and and you're sort of you're not expected to do the flashy things you see on the coast. That's fine. But at programs like Florida, when you've had quarterbacks like Tim Tebow and Rex Grossman and coaches like Steve Spurrier and Urban Meyer, you don't want to just win. You're expected to pulverize people. You're expected to have long highlight reels with touchdown passes and pick sixes. And yeah, they still have the pick sixes, but not being able to score regularly, not having big numbers through the air. That is a problem for this fan base. It is a very demanding fan base. Again, they don't want to just win. They want to win with style points and that hasn't happened. And that's why even after consecutive trips to Atlanta, this is a fan base that hasn't bought into what they've seen on the field. And as a result has not been bought into McIlwain. I can understand it. You know, I can understand the frustration. A lot of people, I think it was, I, I believe Andy Staples came out and talked about how spoiled the Florida fan base is. And, and he's an alum. I'm not here to, to call fan base spoiled or anything like that because I think just fan bases have expectations to win. And when you've won national championships in recent memory, any, any fan base is going to be spoiled, so to speak. So I, I'm not going to fault a, a fan base for having too high of expectations of Jim McElwain, I, I think it's realistic to expect a, a program like Florida to, you know, perform week in, week out and not be, you know, a 14-point underdog to a Georgia team that it feels it should be on the same level with right now instead of going in opposite directions. And I think this Saturday can provide a look into if these programs are going in separate directions. We talked about it a few weeks ago when Georgia just went into Neyland and pummeled Tennessee and that was the, the troubling thing for, for fans in Knoxville, was they saw this reality of a team in their division that was just going straight up, and they were going straight down. And when you accept that reality as a fan, it's, it's hard to get that back, and it's hard to get that trust back in a coach. So for me, th- this, this game is about McIlwain just simply not getting destroyed by a Georgia team that has all the reason to, to, just, to, to go into Jacksonville and make a big-time statement. If he can avoid that that crushing loss, the narrative shifts a little bit, and all of a sudden we're not talking about Florida as this doormat that's going to be you know relegated to the middle of the pack in the SEC for years to come. All right. So before we move on to the next section, build me a case. Show me a show me a game plan. Show me the way this thing pans out where Florida actually wins this game. You and I are in complete agreement that this is a 14-point spread that feels like it should be about 21. Build me a case. Look into the crystal ball. Show me how Florida wins this game. I think the only way Florida wins this game is like a 17-14 to 14 game. Uh, you get a defensive, a defensive score or a special team score and then like a 75-yard Malik Davis touchdown run because I don't think you sustain drives against this Georgia defense. I think if you catch him making a mistake – you have to absolutely capitalize on it. I think that's the only way that this really happens. Ideally, if you're Florida, you look at that Missouri game tape and you say, we can take some, some shots downfield and we're going to try and expose this secondary and see if they'll make a mistake and we can cash in on a big play. But I don't think that they'll be able to do that. I think they'll try, but I don't think that they'll necessarily be successful. So I think maybe getting Malik Davis involved and getting a big play from him hoping that your defense can, you know, defend against Jake Fromm's slant passes, which, by the way, why in the world is Florida chirping about that? That's a really, really bad move. Can't help themselves. They just can't help themselves. He did it against Michigan. They're doing it against Georgia. I don't know why. But 
that's the only hope that Florida has in this game is if they do really shut down Jake Fromm and they don't and they think that they know what's coming and this turns into a 17-14 scrum so to speak and Georgia's offense is just forced into being one-dimensional that's the only way I think the Gators have a chance and that to me just still seems really slim you know I don't even know if Florida can win a 17-14 game my only prayer for the Gators is that they have to they have to have some sort of electrifying first quarter. They have to just completely take Georgia's breath away with a couple of big plays in the first quarter. Maybe get a strip sack on Fromm, first time he's playing in this game as a true freshman. Maybe get yet another pick six, which always seems to happen for opportune times on this defense. Maybe you can get a punt return score. Maybe you can get that aforementioned 75-yard run from Malik Davis. And you know what? You run out to a 10 to nothing lead or a 14 to 3 lead that nobody saw coming. And then you could try to slow this game down. You can force Jake Fromm to beat you through the air. You can try to bleed the clock with Davis and LaMichael P. Ryan. Maybe, maybe Florida can find a way to win a game like that. But if at any point Georgia gets the lead, I can't imagine Florida coming back and win. They just don't have uh, enough bodies on defense to sustain. They don't have the quarterback who can make enough throws consistently. If they get behind a score or two, this thing is going to be a boat race. That's the way I see it. Yeah, two-possession deficit for Florida is, is a death sentence, in my opinion. There's just there's simply no way against this Georgia defense that, that that's going to hold up. I would agree with you. I mean, I think that's you're going to need some, some weird touchdowns. You're going to need some big play touchdowns. This isn't going to be a Florida offense that's just going to – impose its will and march down the field against against Georgia's defense. I just don't see that happening. If you're listening to the Saturday Down South podcast, and you know the South loves football, but the one thing the South also loves, it's Crystal. That's right. Crystal, home with a classic Crystal burger. It's ready to hook you up for your tailgate, the Crystal, the one you grew up with and loved in college way after midnight. Right now, it's only 79 cents all day, every day, as many as you want, 79 cents a pop. And because no tailgate is complete without wings, Crystal has you taken care of there as well. All wings, any wings, 49 cents each, Saturdays and Sundays, It can be boneless, it can be traditional, buffalo sauce, barbecue sauce, any wing, any flavor, 49 cents each all weekend long. But best of all, Crystal's going to take care of the Saturday Down South podcast. Listeners, text SDS to 37793 right now, and you're going to get two free crystals. That's SDS to 37793 via text message. 79 cent crystals, 49 cent wings. I guarantee if you show up to your tailgate with a steamer pack full of crystals, you're going to hurt your hand giving all those high fives. So stop by your local crystal today. Connor, let's move on to the Heisman Trophy. I'm proud to say that I'm a voter. I have been on and off since 2009 or so. And this is, I wrote the column, I think last week. It seems like the SEC is out of the Heisman race entirely altogether. It's hard to come up with anybody who's even a remote candidate at this point. If you go to ESPN's Heisman Watch, there are 11 players getting at least one fifth place vote and only one from the SEC. And it's Alabama defensive back Minka Fitzpatrick getting two fourth place votes from a panel of about eight or nine people. And we, you and I both know that Minka Fitzpatrick, sensational player, is not getting anywhere near the Heisman Trophy. So how do you see the Heisman race at this point? I love the players at the top. It's just odd to me two years in a row that the SEC seems to be all but eliminated before we even get to Halloween. 
Well, I'll, I'll disagree with that notion that the SEC is completely eliminated. While I, I agree with you that there are no SEC frontrunners, for my money, you know, these odds are according to Bovada and what they came out with this week. Jalen Hurts is sitting there at number five. He's got 20-to-1 Heisman odds. He still has big-time showdowns coming up. He's still the quarterback for the number one team in the country, and he has still put up some pretty solid numbers, all things considered, not necessarily Lamar Jackson numbers. I know that he hasn't, you know, he's not, he's not video game numbers in that regard, but I think the, you know, the lack of turnovers and just the smart decisions that he makes is going to keep him in this race. For my money, I like that 20-to-1 odds on, on Jalen Hurts. I think that he has some big opportunities left on the schedule to have his Heisman moment, so to speak, and have those monster performances. Um, so I think he's still in the conversation. He's still obviously behind, you know, the Saquon Barkley's, Bryce Love, Baker Mayfield, JT Barrett, guys like that. But I do think that there is still the door is still cracked for Jalen Hurts to sneak into this thing. If he goes off against Auburn, if he goes off against Georgia, you know, potentially Georgia. I think that we could definitely be having this conversation about whether or not he's worthy of, you know, of stealing this thing. Because let's not forget, this is still a quarterback-driven award. We're talking about the running backs nonstop this year, but this is still an award that favors the quarterback and what they're able to do on a big stage. So I think given the fact that we haven't had a quarterback run away with this the way that Lamar Jackson did last year, I think Jalen Hurts is still, is still very much in the conversation. Yeah, I think he is as well. And actually, when I wrote the column last week, I said Jalen Hurts was the only shot that the SEC had left. His numbers are not eye-popping because of the way he plays, the offense he's in, and the fact that they win half their game 66-3. So there's no need for him to even be in there late in the ballgame. I'm just look at this past Saturday. You're talking about Alabama and Tennessee, the third Saturday in October. This is supposed to be one of the premier cross-division classes clashes in the SEC and he was on the sidelines with about 10 minutes left in the third quarter. It was 28 to nothing. The game was totally out of hand. And Coach Saban said, you know what? I want to get Tua Tongo-Vailoa some snaps with the first-team offense. And Jalen Hurts' day was over. He did some nice things in the game, but he never had an opportunity to throw for 300 yards. He never had an opportunity to run for 150 yards and do these Heisman-esque things you see on the highlight reels. But I do believe that he's a sensational player, and I do believe he does have a chance because, as you talked about, Heisman moments matter. Last year was a little bit of an anomaly with Lamar Jackson, the Louisville quarterback. He seemed to have this award wrapped up by mid-October based on what he did in that Syracuse game and that Florida State game. His numbers were just too sensational to ignore. Even though he struggled down the stretch, he won the award early. That's usually not how it goes. You need to have big games, big plays, big moments, and big games, and he will have opportunities to do that. I think he's been hurt by, A, the Alabama team's been so incredibly good, he doesn't have to make big plays in the fourth quarter, and B, comparatively, the schedule for Alabama has been a little bit weak. Not their fault, but the schedule has been a little weak, so he hasn't had chances late in games to do the dual threat things he does. I think he's a sensational player. I think he's worthy of the Heisman. I just don't know if we've seen the best of him yet. I do think he has a shot, 20 to 1. I'm not a betting man, but I think that's worth a saw buck. I, I like those odds for him. I mean, I, I'm not saying he's going to go out and win the thing. To me, my money, you know, but 
Saquon Barkley is not the bet right now if we're talking about, you know, because he's the favorite. We're not talking about him as a guy that you want to lay all your money down. Now, if he goes into Columbus and hangs up 200 yards and Penn State walks out of Ohio, walks out of the horseshoe with a victory, I think, you know, as Kirk Herbstreit said, I think this is Barkley's award to lose. Um, I think we're kind of getting to that point already, and he's getting into somewhat Lamar Jackson territory just with what he's doing from an all-purpose standpoint. It's interesting the fact that, you know, two years ago we kept talking about Derrick Henry versus Christian McCaffrey, and it was Derrick Henry who kept racking up all these rushing yards and how impressive he was game in, game out, putting up the rushing numbers. And it was McCaffrey who was doing the things uh, as an all-purpose back, and, you know, everybody argued, you know, because he broke Barry Sanders' record that, you know, he should have been, he should have won the Heisman Trophy. Now it's, you know, a, a running back from Stanford who's racking up all the rushing yards and then a guy on the East Coast in Saquon Barkley who's doing the all-purpose thing. So the roles have kind of switched from what they were two years ago. Uh, but I think Barkley, just the fact that he's, you know, going to be uh, a first-round pick, probably a top-five pick in, in the NFL draft, the fact that he was a Heisman candidate coming into the year, he's kind of the rare case of guys that we've seen that have been able to live up to that that Heisman mantra that they had in the preseason. You know, even look at a guy like Darius Geis, who just spent basically the first half of the season banged up. I mean, he went off last week against Ole Miss, and he said, he said he's still not at 100% for that. You know, he still wasn't at 100% for that game. So um, I, I think, for my money, Barkley is still um, the favorite to win this award, but Hurts is intriguing. And let's not completely discount his chances yet because – Bovada certainly thinks that he has a shot. He's at number five right now in those odds, and I think that would surprise a lot of people, but this, this race hasn't been decided just yet. We still have a lot of football yet to determine who, who's really going to emerge and who's going to get that invite to New York. Yeah, two years ago, I voted for Derrick Henry over Christian McCaffrey, and I have to admit, the further I get away from that decision, the more I think that I got that one wrong and I should have flip-flopped him. It's nothing against Derrick Henry. I mean, when you break the SEC's all-time record for rushing yards and touchdowns and attempts in a single season, I granted, in more games, you deserve the Heisman. But this was sort of a maybe a case of East Coast bias, didn't get a chance to watch enough Stanford football. But I do think McCaffrey was the best player in the country at that point. But this year, yeah, Barkley, again, I'm looking at this ESPN poll. There's 12 voters. Barkley's currently getting 11 of the 12 first-place votes. Bryce Love is getting the other one, but here's one guy I want to talk about, and it's Baker Mayfield, the Oklahoma quarterback. As I referenced, I've been a voter for a while, and I'm familiar with what I like to call voter fatigue, and I don't think Mayfield really has a chance to win this thing, even if the Sooners win out, even if he puts up his customary gigantic numbers on a weekly basis. This is a guy who two years ago went to New York and finished fourth, last year went to New York and finished third. I think that fact alone is going to hurt him in the eyes of voters. It's kind of like the NBA MVP race every now and then. You know, Michael Jordan, you could make him the MVP every single year because he's the best player in the league. But every now and then, you got to give the MVP to Karl Malone or you have to give it to Charles Barkley because, you know what, you're a little bored. You want to change the conversation a little bit. Not unlike uh, LeBron James now, where you can make the case he should win it every single year. But instead, we find a way to give it to Steve Nash back-to-back times. So I think that Mayfield is going to be hurt just because his name is too familiar with voters and with fans watching college football. It's not a surprise if he throws for 350 yards and four touchdowns. He's been doing it for three seasons for the same program in the same offense. So I think that's going to hurt him. Will he go to New York a third time? 
probably, but I give him almost zero chance to win, and voter fatigue is the reason why. Yeah, and, you know, he he doesn't really have the, the arc that you look for in a, and that you usually see in a typical Heisman candidate. We like guys like Barkley and Love who appear to be playing their best football and appear to be getting to this, this new level that we haven't seen before. And Mayfield's just been doing it for a while. You're right. There is some voter fatigue there. It's almost too familiar. He's the guy who's been in college forever, just like J.T. Barrett. You're like, all right, well, what are you doing that's really new? Because if we didn't vote for you to win it two years ago, why are we going to vote for you this year? So I do think that will hurt him. I, I do think that he's going to be able to get to New York and he's going to get that invite. Um, but as for winning the award, it, it is going to be tougher. And that, that's all the more reason, in my opinion, that there is this opportunity for Jalen Hurts because, you know, I, I think it would be really tough to imagine a situation in which two quarterbacks don't get to New York. I think they're still going to bring uh, at least two quarterbacks there. And, you know, that, that spot could be available for Jalen Hurts. And I think a lot of people, um, if they continue to watch what he's doing in SEC play and the decision-making that he's had week in, week out, I think they're going to recognize him as a legitimate threat to win this award. Now, of course, it would help if, you know, the likes of Saquon Barkley and Bryce Love sort of, you know, stopped, continue, stopped their, their dominant pace that they've set in the first part of the season. But um, I think the race is still open right now. Uh, Barkley's the favorite, of course. But, you know, it'll be interesting. We're, we still have a month left of football, and, you know, a lot of different things can happen. Somebody could come out of nowhere, but – uh, for right now, this race looks like it has a couple legitimate candidates at the top, that's for sure. Just to rub a little salt in the Gators' wounds, by the way, getting one fifth-place vote, Will Greer, your starting quarterback of West Virginia, leads the nation in touchdown passes, I believe, with 24. No one's surprised he's putting up gigantic numbers in Dana Holgerson's offense, but he can't help but being Gainesville and playing just a big game of what-if right now. He's an interesting candidate, too, because – He's peaking kind of at the right time right now, and they're a team that if they, you know, win out and have only two losses and he's playing really good football down the stretch, he could easily earn a trip to New York. That would be, oh, man, for Florida fans, if you're, oh, if, if you're watching that, that's, that, that's the most painful thing in the world right now. I mean, to, just to see the way that he's been playing and the way that that West Virginia offense is looking right now, that's, uh, that's a tough thing to stomach. One guy we've talked about very little so far is Bryce Love. I think we referenced him when we were mentioning the Christian McCaffrey situation with Stanford. But when you look at this guy's numbers, I mean, this is video game type stuff. It's absolutely unbelievable. And it's interesting because he does play on Thursday night football this week. He will play Thursday night, presumably for a television audience that should be interested Granted, he has to go up against the NFL and things like that, and you wonder how many people are going to tune in to Stanford, Oregon State on the West Coast, I believe, with a 9 p.m. East Coast kickoff time. But last week against Oregon in a 49-7 victory for the Cardinal, 17 carries, 147 yards, and two touchdowns. By the way, 147, that is his low watermark of the season. That's the least amount he's rushed for in his seven games. Look at this guy, 180, 160, 184, 263, 301, 152, and 147. We're at beyond the halfway point of the season. He's still averaging over 10 yards per carry. He's scored at least one touchdown in every game. He's gone for multiple touchdowns, three out of his last five. I mean, this guy is incredible, and very few people could pick him out of a lineup because – 
He plays for the Stanford Cardinal, and most people don't see his games, particularly the East Coast and Midwest types, because they're not staying up late to watch Stanford games that end at midnight or 1 o'clock in the morning. I think it hurt that Stanford lost two games early. I think if you have a team that is still in the playoff hunt and is still playing these meaningful games week in, week out, it's a little bit easier to throw that guy into the conversation for all these awards. And while he definitely deserves to be considered for all these awards, without a doubt, and I've seen him play you know, late on Saturday nights and into, Saturday, or into Sunday morning, you know, you're looking at a guy who's not playing in these big-time, um, meaningful playoff, uh, you know, playoff-caliber games that it's, it's a little bit tough to look at what he's doing and, and think, all right, what's this, what does this really matter? I mean, he's, you know, he's not like Saquon Barkley who's going against the number one Michigan defense and he's putting up you know, 69-yard touchdowns on the first play from scrimmage in hopes to you know, maintain their control of their playoff destiny. It's just a different storyline with Bryce Love than it is for Saquon Barkley. And I think team relevance has something to do with it. The wiggle room for a running back to be in that conversation when your team isn't where it needs to be, um, there's just not as much there as there is for quarterbacks. I think if you're a quarterback, you can kind of have three losses, and if you're putting up big numbers, you're still in the conversation a little bit easier. But um, he's definitely working against that, and he's working against the fact that Saquon Barkley just does so many things. And, you know, Bryce Love, to his credit, um, you know, he's, he's been a better pure running back in terms of just a, a rusher. But overall, you know, the, with the ability to catch passes, Barkley is superior in that aspect. And I think people look at him as an all-around player. And maybe there is a little bit of that, that voters remorse from a couple years ago. And maybe voters will think, well, shoot, we, we discounted Christian McCaffrey for all the all-purpose things that he did. And we don't want to make that same mistake again, and we just want to give Barkley the award. So there are a lot of narratives that are going to come up, come come to be. But um, Stanford needs to keep winning for for Bryce Love to maintain his his Heisman pace, so to speak, and for him to be in that one-two uh, conversation moving forward. Yeah, even though Love had a huge game, Stanford lost week two at Southern Cal, lost pretty convincingly as well. And then the next week, again, Love has a big game with a buck eighty-four and two scores. But you lose at San Diego State. It's hard to, and, th- and then all of a sudden Stanford's one and two, and out of the polls, you're not paying attention. Where the next week against UCLA, he goes for 263, and then the week after that against Arizona State, he goes for 301. You're not paying attention to those games because Stanford is not as relevant as maybe it could been if not for the loss to USC and the upset at San Diego State. But in his defense. Granted, Oregon State on a Thursday night is a tough sell. Lots of other things on TV, other things to pay attention to. By the way, the World Series is also going on. But after that, he has his own version of the Apple Cup in back-to-back weeks at Washington State. This is not your typical Wazoo team. Very interesting. Rated 15th in the country right now. After that, you get to host Washington. Won the Pac-12 last year. Still in the mix for the college football playoff like a year ago. Then you play Cal. And then you still have the Notre Dame game. You finish the regular season against Notre Dame. And if the Irish are for real, and that's potentially a game with the playoff berth on the line, there's going to be a lot of eyeballs on that game. So if Bryce Love can continue his current pace, get to that Notre Dame game, which will be in Palo Alto, by the way, if he puts up 200, two and a quarter on the ground, that's the kind of statement that voters like to see and maybe gets him to push over the edge. So The huge numbers in the beginning part of the season, somewhat ignored, but if he's on a similar pace with the schedule he has down the stretch, 
not to mention the fact that Barkley plays some pretty serious defenses. Statistically, he might be very, very difficult for voters to ignore. Here's a question for you. We can we can wrap this conversation up with this, and this is extremely hypothetical, but where would Bryce Love be from a national standpoint if he played all of his games in the SEC? With the same exact numbers? With the same exact numbers. Well, I think that question pretty much answers itself. I mean, uh, we're celebrating you know, guys like uh, Nick Chubb right now for about 700 yards on the ground, which is pretty good, and Bryce Love is almost double that. So, yeah, everyone just assumes that SEC defenses are twice as good as they have in the Pac-12. So if you had an SEC running back with those identical numbers right now, yeah, Saquon Barkley would be looking up at that guy, no question. It's, it, yeah, it's, and it's something that people are going to continue to bring up, and you know the West Coast bias is still going to be there. I'm, I'm already getting a little bit sick of that, that narrative, so to speak. But you know, if he puts up big games against actual defenses that he's going to see down the stretch, and not you know Oregon State, who he's going to see this Thursday, I think that you know his his campaign isn't going anywhere, and I think he's going to at least make this interesting. His numbers are too good not to. All right, let's go ahead and move on. I know narrative is one of your favorite used words to use, and we can talk about that with the college football playoff projections as well. Uh, I think there's only about four or five candidates right now, but of course the regular season is not over right now. We have to have some serious conversation about Alabama and Georgia. Is it possible both of them get in? What's going to happen in the Big Ten? A lot of it's going to shake itself out. You assume that maybe Penn State, Ohio State on Saturday at the shoe, maybe that's an eliminator game. Uh, Clemson to Miami, that's a potential eliminator game down the road if they meet in the ACC championship game. And then Notre Dame is the ultimate monkey wrench. We sort of forgot about the Irish three and nine a year ago, a complete dumpster fire. Maybe it was a four and eight one, one way or another, they were terrible. And then this year you lose week two to Georgia and you sort of forget about them, but here they are six and one with a serious schedule down the stretch. A one-loss Irish team with that schedule is getting into the playoff. I don't care if you like that or not. That is going to happen. History has proven that. That team turns on television sets, and that is a factor in that committee room, whether you want to admit it or not. So lots of ways to go with the college football playoff conversation. How do you forecast it the rest of the way? Well, let's let's just talk about the the first poll on on Tuesday because that's I think that's what people are people are interested in and you know we talk about it it's it's a TV show I mean the reality is the poll doesn't matter until you know all the regular season all the regular season and conference championship games are are in the book and we're talking about who actually gets in but in terms of you know from an entertainment standpoint I am very interested to see what the committee does um, on uh, when the poll comes out next Tuesday on Halloween also Nick Saban's birthday by the way. Um, so I think we're going to be looking at Alabama at number one. I think Georgia actually will get that number two spot. I think they're going to beat Florida on Saturday. And then at number three, to the surprise of many this preseason, I think TCU gets that spot. And believe it or not, I think Ohio State's going to come in at number four because I think the Buckeyes beat Penn State this weekend and forced Penn State into that 6-7 range uh, right around where Clemson is for one-loss teams. Do I think that's necessarily fair? Uh, maybe not, because I think Clemson should probably be ranked ahead of Ohio State. But I think the fact that if Ohio State is able to beat number two Penn State, I think we're having a different conversation about Ohio State's strength of schedule. So that that's the way I see this playing out, just in terms of the first poll on Tuesday that comes out. Would you agree with that, or would you tweak a few things? I would probably tweak a few things, but the direction I want to go off of that from you is – 
Not a whole lot of love for undefeated Wisconsin right now. Not a whole lot of love for undefeated Miami right now. Should be in the college football playoff conversation. And they're sort of on the outside looking in right now, despite beating everyone on the schedule to date. You're more the Midwest guy. I'm more the ACC guy. Why don't you answer the Wisconsin question, and I'll follow up with the Miami question. Why aren't the Badgers getting more love? Is it strictly a case of you know the Big Ten West isn't much to talk about these days? Yeah, it's, it's that, and it's their, the fact that they didn't have that marquee non-conference game. You know, I said earlier in the week, um, Wisconsin, to its credit, always, you know, almost always has quality non-conference matchups. I mean, look at last year, you know, having LSU. They played Alabama the year before that, LSU the year before that. BYU is a dumpster fire this year. That trip to BYU was supposed to be a lot more challenging than what it ended up being. Wisconsin wins that game 40-6. to six. They don't have a quality win on their schedule. That's that's the, the simple reality. And while Wisconsin, I think, does deserve to be in the conversation, so to speak, and I think they're better than maybe a lot of people give them credit for, I don't think that they're worthy of a top-four spot as of right now just because they haven't beat top-five teams. The committee wants to see who you've beaten. That's the number one thing that this comes down to. It is who have you beaten. Your, your losses, yeah, your, your losses are you know, a factor in how many losses you have are obviously important. But the committee has said before, we'll put a one-loss team ahead of an undefeated team if, they, if we feel like it has played a better schedule. Now, if you have two losses, of course, it's a completely different, different conversation. But the committee values one-loss teams based on strength of schedule almost the same way that it does an undefeated team. And I don't think that it's going to put Miami in there just because it's undefeated. I think the same thing with Wisconsin. But it, it comes down to strength of schedule for the first part of the season. Now, a team like Wisconsin, the rest of the way, doesn't have anything left in the regular season that lends itself to, to that big-time quality win. At home against Michigan isn't looking like that big marquee victory opportunity, so they would have to obviously win a Big Ten championship and beat a, an Ohio State or a Penn State or something like that. So um, that's the case for Wisconsin, and I think that's why the Badgers are going to be outside of the top four looking in on Tuesday. Yeah, it's not that dissimilar a story from Miami because historically since the Canes have been in the ACC, this is just not the program you remember of the 80s and the 90s and the early aughts that was just sensational and a part of the national championship conversation year after year, no matter who the coach was, just because they had better players and their style of play was incredible. But that's a, they, they, again, have a hard time. They don't have a quality win right now. They really don't. I mean, you open up with Bethune-Cookman. You have an Arkansas State game that had to get canceled because of the hurricane. The Florida State game gets postponed. You come back. You have to play Toledo. You give up 30 points to Toledo, granted in victory. You win against Duke. You play the Florida State game that, quite honestly, should have been a loss. My beloved Seminoles found a way to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory on the game's final play. That's what's going to happen this year in Tallahassee. And then the Georgia Tech game. You, know, you had a hard time putting away a frisky Georgia Tech team, only a one-point victory. You get Syracuse at home the next week. Again, a one-score victory. You let a decent team hang around way too long. And then Saturday, you're at North Carolina. The Tar Heels are one of the worst teams in the Power Five right now. Incredible how far they've fallen from a year ago with Mitch Trubisky and the like. They have absolutely nothing going on in Chapel Hill on either side of the ball. After that, there are some opportunities for the Canes. They get the host of Virginia Tech. You have to love Justin Fuente and how he's turned around that program. And then you have the Notre Dame game, which I talked about, the 
the old uh, Catholics versus convicts game from 1988, I believe it was. They've played every now and then. Always fun when those two teams get together. That will be in Miami. But you know what? This is just a Hurricanes team that will find a way to lose a game it shouldn't. Maybe it's Virginia. Uh, November 18th, or maybe it's at Pitt to close the regular season. That's what this Miami team has done. And even if the Canes find a way to run the schedule 12 and nothing, 12 and 0 in the regular season, if they meet Clemson and Clemson is fully healthy at quarterback and presumably everywhere else, do we really think that Miami can hang with the defending national champion? I certainly don't. So even if Miami should be a little higher in the first uh, playoff poll. Maybe it deserves to be fifth or sixth right now. I just don't think they're a contender. I don't think this is the FSU bias in me coming out. I've seen this team a couple times. It's commendable what they've done under coach Mark Rick, but I'm not buying him as a national player right now. So you bring up an interesting point and this is something that people are going to talk about. And I don't think you meant to bring up this point, but you did. Miami doesn't have a quality win right now, but it beat Florida state. Alabama beat Florida State. And I know that Alabama beat a Florida State team that had DeAndre Francois for three quarters. But the argument is still going to be, okay, Florida State's defense isn't nearly as good as we thought it was going to be. And the offense outside – the offense is obviously not nearly as good as we thought it was going to be, given the fact that they've had so many struggles. And it's not like they were you know, moving the ball down the field with Francois either. So you're looking at an Alabama team that's still looking for a quality win. Now, granted, Alabama has been dominant, and Miami has not been dominant. And I don't think anybody's going to question whether or not Alabama is, is worthy of being in the, in the top four. But I think there are going to be some people that are hesitant to say that Miami is definitively the number one team right now because, to be honest, Georgia's actually had more quality wins, and Georgia has been dominant in its own right. So if you have a Georgia team that's undefeated and has the road win at Notre Dame and Alabama's sitting there, and yeah, you know, as we talked about earlier, the schedule just hasn't worked out for them. The teams that they've beaten just haven't panned out and been, you know, solid quality victories to have on their resume. Should Georgia be number one instead of Alabama? Is that is that a crazy thing to think about right now? It's not crazy, but I think Alabama just deserves the benefit of the doubt. I know college football season should be looked at individually, but they're not. And reputation has a lot to do with it. Alabama has the reputation as the best program in America and deserves it unequivocally. So I have no problem having the tide up at number one. You're right. You look at that schedule right now. It's hard to parse up the Florida State situation with Alabama versus Miami. Now, for three quarters before that DeAndre Francois injury, I'm still of the belief that that Florida State team on September 2nd was really, really good. And Alabama finally took over with some field position and special teams in the second half. Then you had the Francois injury, and it was arithmetic after that. But by the time that Seminole squad hosted Miami – too many injuries, too many problems with a true freshman quarterback who should be wearing a red shirt right now. That was not a particularly sexy victory for the Hurricanes, even though it's one of the better, the better rivalries in all of college football. So, yes, Alabama has a hard time talking about a quality win right now. Look at what they had in the East this year. They traveled to Vanderbilt. Vanderbilt is, let's face it, Vanderbilt. You host Tennessee. And the Volunteers are as down as they've ever been in the Butch Jones era. So it's tough to find a quality win. But for Alabama, we assume they will have quality wins down the stretch. They still have the LSU game coming. They still have the Auburn game coming. And presumably, they'll get the Bulldogs in Atlanta if they take care of their business. So it's a very fine line when you talk about the college football playoff because 
Are we judging strictly about the resume now? Are we projecting what the resume resume might be in two or three weeks based on who we're going to think is going to win certain games? It, it's an imperfect argument, but that's what makes it so much fun to talk about and why these things get so much conversation on message boards and the like. And go figure, we haven't even talked about TCU yet. It's nope. A TCU team that's undefeated has a, a road win at, at Arkansas that actually doesn't look like one of their quality wins at all. Nope. Figure. But at the time, we were thinking, oh, TCU's impressive because of how good it looked against Arkansas down the stretch. But, yeah, it's it's just interesting the way that uh, this first poll could potentially shake out. And, you know, not to, not to keep talking about Florida State, but, you know, all the more impressive that Georgia has been able to do what it's been able to do given the fact that it also had its starting quarterback go down in the season opener and had a true freshman come in. Georgia's sitting there at number two in the country, and Florida State's sitting there at two and four. Obviously different backups in those spots, but I, I don't buy that as a legitimate excuse for why a team should, ple- should completely go into free fall. Florida State is the really interesting thing uh, that the committee is going to have to weigh when it comes to the playoff and how to value Florida State week in, week out, because there are a lot of teams that are going to have those that Florida State win that, you know, if you're valuing it for differently for Alabama as you are for, you know, a Miami, you know, what, what are we really saying here? What are we really going for? So um, there, there are just a lot of layers that are going to come out to this thing, and I'm, I'm very interested to see the way that uh, the committee values these wins and comes up with its, its first poll of the season. This weekend we could be having a completely different conversation. You know, if, if a Penn State loses, you know, even if <laughs> – somehow a Georgia loses or a TCU loses or something like that. I mean, I think that we're, this can all change in a, in, a, in a matter of, you know, in a matter of days. So, And something to keep in mind, too, just one, one note real quick, is that, you know, five of, the, five of the 12 teams that have been ranked in the top four in the first poll have made the playoff. So the majority of teams that have been ranked in the top four of the first playoff poll have not made the field. So just something to keep in mind when evaluating these this, this first poll that's going to come out on Tuesday, it's by no means a, a set-in-stone thing for the way that this is all going to shake out. Still have a month of football left, so it's all for entertainment. Yeah, don't make me angry, by the way, with all this Florida State talk and who's beating them. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry, but it's totally true. It's incredible how that's how Florida State plays in the national conversation right now, which victory against them weighs more in the eyes of the committee. But let's move back to the Big 12 real quick. We glossed over TCU, and I'm very, very strong in this opinion. I think the Big 12 is going to be left out almost no matter what. The only way that the Big 12 is going to be represented is if TCU runs the table, has a 13-0 resume, and you absolutely cannot deny the Horned Frogs. If that's the situation, yes, they'll get in. But I don't think a one-loss TCU gets in. I don't think a one-loss Oklahoma State gets in. There's a sliver of a chance that a one-loss Oklahoma gets in. Because A, bigger brand name, B, Baker Mayfield, having stars can help to some degree in that committee room, and C, maybe this comes down to an either-or situation versus an Ohio State. If Ohio State is in the conversation or wins the Big Ten with one loss, it's real easy to be an Oklahoma fan and say, hey, we spanked them. We beat that team one-on-one, fair and square. We deserve to be in over the Buckeyes. I think that's the only opportunity for the Big 12 to get in. Either Oklahoma wins the conference, has one loss, and has to go up against, from a voting perspective, in Ohio State, they would lose that argument if it was, say, Penn State, or TCU runs the table. And I don't think either one is very likely. The worst scenario possible for the committee is if 
Alabama and Georgia play as undefeated teams in an SEC championship, and Notre Dame wins out. Oh. If that happens, that's disastrous. Georgia versus Notre Dame, if it comes down to that, oh. that is going to be the most interesting argument in the four-year history of the playoff. More interesting than the Ohio State-TCU argument a couple years ago. Because, Much more. I mean, Ohio State, you know, obviously deserved to – to be there based on what they did afterwards, you know, and in the moment we were still debating it, but um, yeah, it'll be really interesting to see the, if that plays out because you would be leaving out three power five conferences potentially if you were going to have to make that decision, if you wanted to include Notre Dame and Georgia and then potentially another power five champ, you know, if, if Alabama were to win the SEC. So these are extremely hypothetical situations, but you know, we're they're 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 worth discussing. Finally, at this point, we're getting to that point where we're actually having meaningful conversations, and we're not just talking about the fact that oh, the Big Twelve actually has more AP top twenty-five teams than the rest of the Power Five conferences. All of that conversation is going to shift completely, and we're going to be extremely playoff focused from here on out. That's the good thing. Yeah, just imagine the conversations not only in that committee room, but just at water coolers and watering holes across the country if. You have a 12-1 and Georgia team that didn't beat Alabama in the SEC title game. You have an 11-1 and Notre Dame team that ran the table the rest of the way, doesn't have a conference championship game because it's still independent. But that, that's going to be the argument, and that's going to be a phenomenal argument because all the Notre Dame folks would be like, look at the schedule we have and look at the quality wins we have, and we didn't get a chance to play that first Saturday in December, and we beat Team A and Team B and Team C. Oh, by the way, Georgia couldn't even win its own conference. Why are you going to send the dogs? And then all the Georgia people have to say is, hey, we went to South Bend and we beat you one-on-one. We've seen this argument so many times before, but not necessarily in the CFP environment that you almost want to see it happen because it's going to create so much chaos. But I hope it doesn't and we have sort of a cleaner cut Final Four when we do finally get to New Year's Day. I want chaos. Let's see it. Get your popcorn ready. Let's see it happen. Makes those columns easier to write, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, fan bases who can't agree on anything. That's, when's that ever been bad for college football? <laughs> All right, that was Connor O'Gara. Remember to follow him on Twitter at CJ O'Gara. You can also follow me at SaturdayJC. And thank you for listening to the Saturday Down South podcast. Special thanks to our pals at WDAE in Tampa, as well as our sponsors, Holiday Inn Express and Crystal. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or wherever your favorite podcast can be found. Be sure to give the show a rating as well. My name is John Christ, and for all SEC all the time, visit SaturdayDownSouth.com.